Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Everybody, welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, season two. We're talking about the directors. I'm Mario Sakura, and with me is my co-host, TJ Dahl. How you doing, TJ? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, I'm excited about our episode today. So, again, I'll remind listeners of the premise of the podcast is what we're doing is in each episode, we are looking at a particular movie director and talking about how they represent a particular Enneagram type. Either our belief that it is their Enneagram type, or we just find this theme throughout their films. Okay, so we're going to talk about four movies today. And the director we're going to talk about is Wes Anderson. And we're going to talk about Enneagram Type 4, which is particularly attractive to you, TJ. Indeed, that is my type. So, yeah, looking forward to diving right into this guy and all things 4. All right. Before we talk about Wes Anderson, let's talk about the Enneagram Type 4. Now, again, we're not going to go do a real deep dive here. I encourage people to listen to the episode from Season 1 on the movie Lost in Translation if you want to do a deep dive into the description of what a 4 is. But uh, we're going to assume that you have basic knowledge. And as we go through the movies, we're going to talk about different aspects of the 4. Okay. So we call or I'll say I, in the awareness to action approach to the Enneagram, talk about the four as someone who is striving to feel unique. Okay, They're driven by this desire to figure out in which way, in what ways, they are different from other people. They are unique. They are an individual. Okay, They can wrestle with this idea of not, not really knowing in what ways I'm unique. You know, They can actually feel contradictorily both too attached to other people, too associated with other people, but also too disconnected from them, right? I am not like that, but they're always wrestling with these things that I am not like, right? which shows some kind of attachment, okay? If I'm spending all my time thinking about how I'm not like this person or that person, it shows there's a part of me that's a little bit worried about that. Uh, any comments on that, TJ? Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of negative self-descriptions. <laughs> if there's anything I'm not, it's blank. Or I wouldn't be caught dead doing such and such. There's this big yes. fear of being associated with the wrong kind of people, namely people who don't have taste, people who conform, people who have mediocre values, who just go along with whatever whatever the big thing is that everybody else is into. I will turn my back on that, and in doing that, I will show that I'm unique, I'm sensitive, I'm different from everybody yes. else. Yeah, and so the big challenge that the four has, you know, if you think in terms of theology, there are different ways of describing God, okay? So there's the via positiva and the via negativa approaches, okay? So the via positiva is, well, God is love, God is good, God is justice, right? It's all these things that God is. Whereas in the via negativa approach, it's identifying all the things that God is not, and then whatever you're left with, that's what God is, right? Because you can't really describe what God is. You can say he's not, you know, he's not uh, evil, he's not uncaring, and, and so forth, right? He's not limited. And four is kind of 
not to say that they have a God complex or something, right? Or, you know, but uh, uh, <laughs> you, you can see TJ's face here saying that, uh, well, maybe, maybe so, right? But it's this idea, like you said, is I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. I don't know what I am, but I'm not that. Okay. So it's this reaction against. Now, there is this connection to the other two points on the Enneagram, right? Or this relationship to the other two points on the Enneagram that we like to talk about. There's the relationship to point two, uh, which is striving to feel connected, and the relationship to point one, which is striving to feel perfect. And as with all the types, there is this kind of complicated relationship with those points that we're connected to. With the point two, there is this element of a desire to connect, this longing for romance, but not just romance, right? It's this this sense of feeling special because I'm connected to these people or these things that are special, right? So if this person approves of me, I must be okay. If this person loves me, I must be okay. But they have to be interesting people. They have to be special people, right? They can't be boring, mundane you know, run-of-the-mill people, like you said, TJ. Tell us about that. Yeah, there's a desire to finally be seen and understood by somebody. Fours quite often go through life with this, just this sense underlying everything that nobody sees me, nobody wants me, nobody loves me, nobody values me. But maybe, maybe I will find that one person, that person who sees through all of the bullshit and sees how unique and what a shining diamond I am. And then there will be just the two of us because that person will also be unique. That person will also be sensitive and have good taste. And the two of us will have our own special world full of tasteful things and full of sensitivity and full of beauty and depth and intimacy and all of these things. And we can turn our backs on the world and create our own world together. And that is something we will see in a number of the movies we're going to talk about today. For sure. For sure. Uh, so the other thing, uh, the other connecting point is a point one, this uh, what we call striving to feel perfect. And again, the four has a complicated relationship with that strategy, because on the one hand, they don't want the rules to apply to them. Right. Don't put your rules on me. But they have a lot of internal rules around what they respect. You know, they can be very judgmental about aesthetics and, you know, and quality like you're talking about. They can have very demanding expectations of other people, right? So it's kind of like the rules, you know, the rules don't apply to me, not the legal rules or the social rules, but, you know, don't make me color inside the lines on the coloring book, right, is kind of the, the, the mindset. But there can be this kind of finger-wagging intensity in fours when it comes to their expectations of other people. Uh, you're not living up to my standards. You watch popular sitcoms. You're a fan of sports. You like your family. So it's the four's own standards of like the right way to be. And if somebody doesn't live up to those, that person is done. They are dead yeah. to me. They're not even worth considering. Which, of course, is the kind of thing fours fear ultimately that the world is doing to them. People are dismissing me. People aren't valuing me. So it's, it's this reverse, you know, as Russ Hudson calls it, the leaden rule. Treating others the way you would least like to be treated. Mm. Yeah. So I guess the uh, episode on Friends is out, uh, TJ. Uh, <laughs> right? All right. <laughs> I'm very proud to say, as a four, that I've seen a grand total of one episode of Friends in my life. <laughs> I saw it, right. didn't like it, didn't feel the need to go back. 
particularly right. that asinine theme song where people sing that I'll be there for you. Ugh. Yeah. Legend of belonging? No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Although there is a um, a good four character in, in the show. I mean, oh, listen, really? I'm not suggesting. Yeah, the, the Ross, I think, is uh, a pretty four-ish character, the paleontologist. And well, anyway, so we won't get into Friends because I don't want to do a podcast on it either. Right. So so the other important point, I think, to bring out the classical, the, the thing in terms of the classical Enneagram, the vice is envy. Okay. You know, and it's not you know, I want your money, right? It's it's not that kind of uh, envy, although, you know, it may manifest that way sometimes. But it, it's often about, I want the life you have, or I want this quality that you have, right? Or, you know, I see, I, I want to be treated the way I see people treating you sort of thing, right? So they can live in this world of wanting this thing that feels unattainable. Yeah, there's a sense that everybody else got something that I didn't that I missed that crucial day at school where we all learn how to belong and get along. And everybody seems to know the secret of just how to be a human being that was kept from me. And it's not fair. So there's yeah. this sense of walking through life with some fundamental deficit that everybody else has. And how dare they, how dare they be happy and functional? I yeah. hate them for it. And I also yeah. wish I had it, but I don't want to admit that because that might mean admitting that I want to be part of this world that I've spent my whole life saying that I despise, the world of people who belong, the people who have fun and get along together. But I yeah. secretly actually do want that. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, not to jump ahead, but I think envy is a theme we're going to see in Rushmore. Because as you were talking about envy, I was thinking about how envy is kind of this mix of desire and anger and longing, right? All sort of blended together into this, you know, this emotional quality that's not quite hateful, right? But, you know, has a bit of an edge to it, you know, but still sort of a, a neediness to it at the same time. Okay. Yeah. In a certain way, right? So, and, and I think we see that with Max Fisher and his relationship with um, uh, Mr. Bloom uh, at one point. But again, we won't jump ahead here. So, uh, one final thought regarding fours. If we look at the classical virtue of the four, it's equanimity, right? So, the work of the four is to find equanimity. It's to find this quality of peacefulness and contentment and balance, right, uh, rather than the emotional volatility that we often see in fours of just this, you know, peacefulness in a sense, right? But it's it's not the peacefulness of the nine, right? It's kind of an engaged, you know, balanced quality, not getting too high, not getting too low sort of thing. Okay. And again, I think this is a theme that we see in Wes Anderson's movies that really we can touch on it well, right? These characters on this quest, for a sense of equanimity and, you know, this uh, often this, you know, sort of resolution that involves equanimity in some way. Okay. Tell me about that from your perspective. Yeah. Equanimity really is the kind of thing where you don't actively do it. You notice it when it's happening and you notice that I can be with whatever feelings I have. So fours famously have a lot of stormy feelings and they still happen. And then I'm able to just be with them no matter what they are, without necessarily putting a story to it. But if, if it is appropriate to be sad or if sadness just comes up, if envy comes up, if fury or, or hatred comes up, anything like that, I can be with it, I can identify it, and then I can let it go. 
And similarly, I can be with my joy, which is verboten for a lot of fours. You know, there's this sense of like, if I'm happy, then I'm one of those filthy conformists. So I can, I can actually connect with people. I can be, I can have a good conversation with my parents. I can be with friends. I can laugh and lose myself with that without my inner critic coming in and saying, don't you do that. Yeah. I think the key lesson for fours to learn is that they don't have to force uniqueness, right? They don't have to manufacture uniqueness. Everybody that comes into the world is unique, right? I mean, no matter how much you and I are similar, we have different DNA, we have different, you know, fingerprints, right? Different iris prints, you know, all this sort of thing. So, you know, we can't help but be individuals. And the irony for many fours is that their efforts to force some sort of uniqueness make them fall into see their sort of cliche characters almost, right? Of, you know, uh, every hipster looking exactly alike, you know, to the point where you can't tell them apart anymore, right? So, you know, but that's hard to learn because it doesn't feel like the reality. And again, I think that's where that equanimity starts to come in. When When fours start to realize that, things settle down for them, right? Okay, I don't have to force this. I can just be. You're unique no matter what. And exactly. any attempt to prove that you're unique actually betrays a deep down fear that you're not. But yeah. you could listen to the same music as everybody else. You could dress the same as everybody else. You could watch the same TV shows or be a fan of the same sports teams and everybody else. And none of that negates your uniqueness. Nothing yeah. ever could. So uniqueness is something you can just relax into and just understand that you have it no matter what. And that's a really freeing realization for a four. No matter what you create, no matter what you do, you will be unique and so will everybody else. And that doesn't negate belonging. Great. All right. So it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, this, for those of you who are listening to this rather than watching it on YouTube, I just became conscious of the picture of Honus Wagner over my shoulder, right? So you made the comment about watching sports, and Honus Wagner was baseball player at Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1910s and 1920s. I'm hoping that at least it being such a uh, an archaic baseball picture, TJ, you're not going <laughs> to hold my my uh, my enjoyment of sports against me as being proletarian here. Okay, so. I- <laughs> I have I have done a lot of work over the last decade to remove the bug from my ass about sports fandom. <laughs> All right. So uh, we're going to talk about Wes Anderson. TJ, you're going to talk about that. I just want to make a comment. You, you said last time that Clint Eastwood was a director who doesn't really have a style. Okay, that a lot of his movies look different. You know, you'll see themes and so forth, but there's not, you're not watching a Clint Eastwood movie and saying, you know, just looking at it and saying, oh, that's Clint Eastwood, right? Now I think we're going all the way the other end of the spectrum, (laughs) okay, with a director who all you have to do is look at something and say, that's Wes Anderson. And in fact, I, I shared with you the other day a website of, uh, that's based on a book. And geez, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name right now. Accidentally uh, Wes Anderson? A- accidentally Wes Anderson. And what these people have done is they go around, they, they collect pictures of places around the world that are quintessentially Wes Andersonian. Right. Uh, uh, you know, that represent his aesthetic that either were in one of his movies or could be because it's such a clear and distinct style. Right. There's a lovely coffee table book that, that they put together that's really cool to look at. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? 
Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Tell us about Wes Anderson and why we think he represents Type 4, TJ. So, yes, Wes Anderson was born and raised in Houston and absolutely does not conform to any stereotype anyone might have of a Texan. Uh, he is <laughs> a very sensitive and thin and quiet and shy from everything that I've read and heard about him. He attended the high school that was later used to film the movie Rushmore. It's a private school. And then he went to the University of Texas at Austin, and that's where he befriended Owen Wilson, who became a career-long collaborator with him, both as a co-writer and as an actor in his movies. He and Owen and Owen's brother, Luke Wilson, made a short film called Bottle Rocket in 1994. It was a 12-minute black-and-white movie that got screened at the Sundance Film Festival and got a lot of attention, particularly from producer James L. Brooks, who, among other things, directed the movie Terms of Endearment and, and As Good As It Gets and produced Taxi and, you know, many, you know, a huge career. It was one of the producers of Existence. Yeah. And then he funded a feature film adaptation of Bottle Rocket, which, again, was faithful to the original uh, cast and premise and received a wide release and completely flopped. It was seen by very few people, but it was seen by enough people to get him a deal to make another feature film, and that was Rushmore, which starred Bill Murray, and the first role for Jason Schwartzman. And that became a moderate hit, and then that paid the career that he's followed ever since. So he's built a body of work over the last 25 years that, as you said, has his distinct fingerprints all over it. You can pretty much identify the Wes Anderson movie from a single frame. And as such, he's been parodied a fair bit. You can find these on YouTube. You know, there's a Family Guy parody. There's a parody of, like, what if Wes Anderson directed the X-Men, that kind of thing. I can't imagine somebody (laughs) doing that with Clint Eastwood. You know, you can't parody Clint Eastwood's directing style. You parody is Clint Eastwood's acting style. Yes. And along those lines, he only does his own projects. He writes or co-writes and directs all of his own movies. They're all comedies. He has never worked for hire. He has never done somebody else's thing. He has never written a script for somebody else. He has never made a sequel. He's never worked on a franchise. His movies are always moderate successes. They're never box office smashes. And not once have I seen a movie of his where I got the sense of like, oh, he's trying to find a wider audience. They're always just in that same style. It's individualistic. It's immediately recognizable. The comedies, which goes outside the lines of the stereotype of fours. Fours are generally thought to be tragic and melancholy and overdoing that. What's not often part of the literature or part of the conversation is that fours can be really funny. And yet, his comedies have melancholy and tragedy and romance and sometimes tragic romance woven right in quite cleanly. There's often characters who fall helplessly in love. My belief is that he's a preserving for, a self-pres for, in Riso Hudson terms. This was brought to my attention by my partner, who is herself a preserving for, 
who one of the big appeals in his movies, in her mind, and something anybody recognizes in his movies, is a great attention to the visual detail, particularly of the physical environment. So in Royal Tenenbaums, there's the house in Rushmore, there's the school. In Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, there's the ship. And we spend a lot of time in this environment, and everything in that environment is arranged just so. It's perfect. Everything is in its exact right place. The colors are vivid. The decor is specific and beautiful and rich. So there's always attention to detail. And there's always a meta element in his movies. There's there's a constant reminder that someone is telling you the story. So that comes in terms of the composition of the frame. It also comes in terms of narration, chapter headings that bisect the movie, or actor and character credits right off the top. So a lot of different things where he's reminding you that I'm telling you the story, and I am Wes Anderson, and this is a Wes Anderson film, unlike anybody else's. Yeah, I I couldn't think of anybody who is that clear, consistent, distinct in their vision, right? Maybe a, a Hayao Miyazaki, right? Who you know uh, did the the anime movies, who we'll come back to when we talk about Isle of Dogs, right? But you know, you can see one of his things. But even that, I don't think there's you know somebody who is as distinct in the look of what they do. And I agree with you about him being a preserving four. And, and I, I meant to talk about the three instinctual biases or the three subtypes of the four in the beginning, but just quickly. So the, the, the strategy is striving to feel unique, but the way that strategy plays out is usually related to the dominant instinctual bias. Okay. And the preserving bias is about one's environment. It's about one's well-being. It's about one's surroundings. And so something we see in preserving fours is this tremendous attention to detail in one's environment and very often in one's clothing as well. And costumes you know, I'll just come out and call them costumes in Wes Anderson world rather than clothing is is hugely distinct, right? I mean, it's just, again, you look at the way somebody's dressed and you say Wes Anderson. So huge, huge attention to detail about this. Now, one of the other things that we see is that there's a particular pattern of expression with these three domains. And so what happens with the preserving four is they have this, we call the navigating domain, the zone of inner conflict, right? Where they're drawn to navigating, they're drawn to groups, but not so much, right? Or they find it tiring or exhausting. So they tend to be, I don't want to go so far as to call them loners, but very independent, characters, right? Very much, you know, I have my space. I guard myself when it comes to relationships. I don't let people in. I can be hard to reach, right? Very often, you know. And when it comes to the transmitting domain, which is kind of this standing out, look at me, you know, this uh, intensity of performance, that's the zone of indifference for the preserving four, right? So they're not big, expressive people. If you think of, uh, say, uh, Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck, right? That dramatic, you know, I lost my hand, you know, sort of thing, that operatic quality. You don't see that in the preserving four, okay? Or at least not very often. I mean, you might see it, you know, you know, at certain moments at home, that sort of thing. But they're much more self-contained than certainly the transmitting four. And boy, oh boy, do we see self-containment in Wes Anderson's movies. Yeah, you're not going to see him do a cameo in his own movies, much less play a significant role or even 
a walk on. I think he's he's got a walk on in Rushmore and blink and you miss it. Yes. And he doesn't have a, a public persona to speak of, really. You never see him in People magazine. You know, he's not having high-profile right. affairs, even though he works with a lot of the same actors, movie to movie. And he clearly has actors he likes working with again. But you never see him partying it up at a nightclub with the Wilson brothers and, you know, all the other stars of, right. of his generation or anything like that. And I think this is reflected in his characters as well, right? His characters are very self-contained. Again, you'll see variations in that. Certainly Max Fisher is, you know, a fairly intense character, okay, in some ways. But most of the characters, it's almost as if they're holding back, okay? There's almost a five-ish sort of quality in some ways, right? But not quite. You can still see it's a four, okay? But you could easily mistake the restraint as something coming from point five. I would associate it more with that preserving instinctual bias sort of holding in the energy yeah one more thing to throw in as it happens i know a guy who went to high school with him so i reached out to him this is somebody i met a long time ago and i reached out to him and i said so tell me about the guy and i did everything i could not to angle him towards the answer that i wanted and just asked as plainly as i could what was he like what do you remember and let me read some of what he, he wrote this is yeah wonderful he said he he was fun and kind and unique. He has a unique way of looking at things, and he always has. So he used the word unique twice, like almost immediately. Mm-hmm. He said he, he was the only one to ask if he and his friend Brett could design every aspect of their yearbook page. Everyone else's page was formatted the same, but Brett and Wes's page was completely designed by them. Wow. He said, Wes and I formed a little club called Fruitmongers, and the club's main activity was finding places around campus to impale large pieces of fruit on sculpture. So, a pretty unusual activity, a prank, very on-brand for a teenager, but a unique kind of prank, and ultimately harmless. He said he was quieter than a lot of people. He made a video for a U2 song and put it up at the talent show. So, he was creating and presenting his stuff from the time he was a teenager. And finally, he said he was always friendly and generous and gracious, and that didn't change when he became well-known. Very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, certainly that uh, quality of uniqueness. I was looking at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews of uh, the movies that we're going to talk about today and was not surprised, you know, but how often this idea of uniqueness, distinctness, et cetera, came up in either about him or about his movies. So, uh, again, he certainly embodies that idea of uh, striving to feel unique. One other thing I I wanted to say in general about his style, you touched on this a a little bit, but, you know, as I was doing some research, a lot of the discussion of his movies is about how he frames the camera when he is shooting a scene. The character is almost always dead center, Okay. And the background is flat. Okay. So, uh, you know, for those of you who are watching, so I am closer to the wall behind me than TJ is. Okay. So TJ has more space. So it gives depth and dimension to the, the shot a little bit. Right. Now we're both sort of centered, but usually when you're watching a scene, you know, the characters are rarely dead center in the frame. But what that flatness and that centeredness does is it creates a feeling of self-centeredness, right? Of self-observation, of self-awareness, okay? It almost takes one out of the action, 
Okay. And so the way I think about this as I was watching it, it's almost like it's this attempt of creating a self-consciousness, okay, and inviting self-consciousness as well, okay? Again, you, you always feel like the, the movie is in some way a stand-in for Wes Anderson, or at least, you know, some of the main characters are, that it's him exploring his inner world, Okay, it's him sort of, you know, figuring out the world through his perception of it and him being at the center of it. Okay, but it's always this sort of even when it's about other people, it's about this bringing back to the character. The other thing we see very often is the the bold colors, right? The the color palette, very, very distinct. The primary colors, okay, vivid. They really jump off the screen. They draw your attention in. He's really good at assigning particular colors to characters, okay? That Bill Murray in both Rushmore and the Royal Tannenbaums, there's a lot of mustard color right? In some of his other movies, we see a lot of real bright primary red, right? The ski caps in Steve's issue and, and Bob Balaban's jacket in Moonrise Kingdom, okay? It's this, again, it's this, the clothing really stands in for characters here, right? To make them identifiable. Danny Glover's character in Royal Tannenbaums has this really rich royal blue blazer that I think he's wearing in every single scene. Yes, And I generally am blind to clothing as I make my way throughout the world. Not when I'm watching a Wes Anderson movie. You can't not notice it. And and not just the clothing, but you're right, the environment in general. The colors are so vivid and specifically chosen that it's just just there in your awareness, whether you want it to be or not. Yes, yes. He very much is, is like a painter. And the way he frames shots very much looks like everything is arranged. So there's the figure at the center who's the focus. And yes. then if there's other characters, they're quite often arranged on either side of them. Or the background is quite beautiful, you know, a number of trees or something like that. Like, yes. as you watch the movie, you're really seeing it through his eyes. It's no accident. Yes. Yes. There was one other aesthetic thing I'll, I'll point out here before we go into the first movie. When, when we talk about Isle of Dogs, something we notice is that the fur on the dogs is moving during the scenes. Okay. He first did that in, was it the fabulous Mr. Fox? Is that the the movie? The fantastic, yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. And I, I was watching something on YouTube about this and they showed the original King Kong and they talked about how during King Kong, you can see the fur on Kong moving you know, like the wind is blowing through it, but it's very erratic and that sort of thing. And the reason for that is, is because it's stop motion. And every time they would move it, it would adjust the fur. You can get around that by using synthetic fur. Okay. But when you use real animal fur, it causes it to move. And so when he was doing Fantastic Mr. Fox, the producers and you know, other people said, look, you know, just use the synthetic fur, right? You won't get this movement. And 
he didn't want, no, I am not going to use synthetic fur. Are you kidding me? We're using real animal fur for this. And so you see that rippling of the hair. And then when we see the Isle of Dogs, it's almost exaggerated, right? I mean, you know, I get the sense watching it that he was playing that up, right? Moving it more than he needed to, you know, so you would catch this. But it was, again, it's this, this aesthetic that he creates is just so unique, so individual, so idiosyncratic, right? It's just this is Wes Anderson, and there is no one like me. In this case, let me remind you of the literal fingerprints of the creator all <laughs> over my creation in every frame. Yes. Yes. All right. So let's move on to the first movie. Okay. So the first movie is Rushmore with Bill Murray and Jason Schwartzman and Olivia Williams. So it wasn't his first movie. I think it was his second movie, right? Bottle Rocket was his first. Bottle Rocket, by the way, is a movie I really, really liked. Wasn't as clearly a distinctive movie, but nothing like Rushmore or his later works, right? And so Rushmore is a slightly more... I guess, accessible than his later movies are to a general audience, right? But it was still quirky, right? I mean, it was still... And like you said, it opens with curtains opening as if you're watching a play, okay? And again, I liked what you said about the meta storytelling, okay? Where you know that this is somebody telling you a story, right? So it opens, the movie opens with the curtains opening. And again, the producer said, get rid of that. You know, why, why would you want to do that? It lets people know that this is a story. And he said, I know, that's why I'm doing it. You know, it is a story. And so what's interesting in the four movies that we picked, he uses a different storytelling device, in each one, right? So the first one is a stage play, right? It's the opening curtains. Royal Tenenbaums is the chapters of a book. Okay? Isle of Dogs is told through journalists, right? Uh, when the translation is done from Japanese to English, it's usually by a journal, you know, a translator who's a news reporter or journalist or something. And then I got the sense, again, and not to jump ahead too much, but with Moonrise Kingdom, the Bob Balaban character almost felt like a Homeric narrator to <laughs> me. Right. So it's this vocal around the campfire storyteller in a way. So Rushmore opens up again, again, the theme of it lays and the main character, 15 year old Max Fisher is a student at this private school. Again, the same one that, you know, a fictional version of the same one that Wes Anderson went to. And he is in every club that you can imagine, right? I mean, and, and the founder of most of them as well, right? The backgammon club, the calligraphy club, the, you know, this club, that club, every, everything. And, and so as you're watching all of these things about him, you're thinking, wow, this guy must be, you know, the superstar of the school. But he's also kind of a weirdo, and he's probably the worst student in the school, right? He's there on a scholarship. He comes from a lower-income family, and they're on a scholarship, and he's on the verge of being kicked out because of uh, academic shortcomings, right? Uh, so it opens with the curtains and you're taken into this world that is not reality, okay? It is clearly shown as a play version of reality, right? And I remember reading something about the producers saying that, you know, take those curtains out of there. But he said, no, I want them in there. And they said, well, people are going to think it's a play. And he said, I want them to think it's a play, right? So again, very deliberate, very mannered in the way he presents things. When the curtains open, we find Max in class, the only kid in the class wearing a blazer, right? So standing out amongst all these other kids who are 
wearing what, TJ? They're wearing just the standard light blue button-up shirt that's part of their uniform. And having gone to private school myself, uh, our uniform involved button-up white shirt and a sweater. Sweater was optional. Most people chose not to wear it most of the time. So that's the sense I get with the blazer and Max Fisher's fellow students at this private school. He always wears it. There isn't a scene where he's not wearing the blazer. And not just in that opening scene, but many scenes. You look at his classmates, they're all just wearing the standard shirt, you know, a couple buttons undone, as casual as they can make it. Not Max. He's a dandy. Yes. Yes, he's a dandy. And contrasted to the other students who are all wearing the same thing, light blue shirt, tan khaki pants, right? Which is as bland as you can get. Okay, so he is in this world of blandness and he is in a math class and the teacher gives them what he says is one of the hardest math problems in the world. And Max gets up and after a couple of moments of stroking his chin and writing in chalk, solves the math problem and everybody lifts him up on their shoulders and carry him out the hero. And then we find out he's dreaming. Okay, And uh, he had been sleeping during the presentation of Herman Bloom played by Bill Murray, who, since this movie, has been in every one of Wes Anderson's films. He, I don't think he was, he wasn't in Bottle Rocket, but, uh, you know, he's been in every other Wes Anderson movie, even as a voice in Isle of Dogs. So, Max, once he wakes up, becomes enamored of Herman Bloom, who's giving a talk about how to be successful. He's a successful local businessman. And he, he, Max becomes kind of obsessed with Herman and wants to be his friend. Okay, so you have this 15-year-old kid becoming this friend with a 50-year-old man, which is a little weird, but also reflective of the four's mindset. Tell us about that, TJ. Yeah, there's the movie is very much set up as if it's the fantasy creation of a four. I mean, you can say that with the opening of the curtains at the beginning, and the movie does end with the closing of those curtains, and those curtains yes. appear throughout the movie as kind of chapter headings with the name of a month projected onto them. Yes. In the world of this particular four, and in many fours, that four is really important. Everybody cares about this guy. You know, in reality, it, you know, his classmates are kind of indifferent to him, but the person with taste, Herman Bloom sees that this kid is special. So just as Max becomes enamored with Herman Bloom, Bloom becomes enamored with Max and offers him a job at his steel plant and not a blue-collar job. It's not specified what it is, but it's more like, I want you to be my son, basically. I I just really like what you have to say after a brief exchange. So it's very much this sense of like, everyone is concerned with Max whether it's positive or negative, you know, another figure in the movie played by Brian Cox is the head of the school, Dr. Guggenheim, who hates Max yes. and refers to him as easily one of the worst students in school. And later in the movie has a stroke and it's Max's appearance that causes him to speak for the first time in 10 days as Dr. Guggenheim <laughs> curses Max's appearance. So <laughs> nobody ignores him. Nobody's indifferent to him. Yeah. He's a very important person. Yes. And going even a step further regarding Herman Bloom, Bloom's own sons, and there are two of them, they're twins, are just terrible kids, right? I mean, they're bullies, they're, you know, they're obnoxious, they're fighting all the time. And Herman is disappointed with his life, right? There's that great scene where Herman's having a, a party at his home and everybody's, you know, hanging around and you can tell his wife is having an affair with some guy and Bloom knows it and he climbs up on the diving board and jumps off and does a cannonball into the pool 
and then sits at the bottom of the pool holding his legs, you know, tucked in while this other kid swims by, this little kid swims by and looks at him. But you can just tell that Herman is looking to escape. Herman needs something to recharge, to energize his life. And who's going to fill that? Max, right? Max is going to kind of bring him back to life because Max is so valuable to people. So Max also desires the attention of one of the new young, attractive young woman teachers, Miss Cross, played by um, Olivia Williams. And at one point when she first meets him, she says to him, I've never met anyone like you, Max. And his response is, you're right, you haven't. Okay, so again, it's that idea that, no, there is no one like me. I am unique. And a word of advice to anybody out there who would like a four to fall in love with them, say that to them. If you meet them and tell them that, that you've never met anyone like them, they will love you forever for that. Yeah. So a good pickup line is, you remind me of, right? it's not a good pickup line, right? That's right. what I should say, right? Yeah. All right, good. Uh, so Noted. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It's currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Max expects the teacher to fall in love with him, Miss Cross. Shockingly, she doesn't, right? I mean, she's a woman in her probably early 30s. He's a 15-year-old boy. So there's this unrequited love affair, and Max enlists Herman to help win her affections. And Herman, for whatever reason, clearly an irresponsible 50-year-old man, agrees to help him, right, but falls in love with Miss Cross himself. And this is where they become rivals and enter into this kind of dark relationship, this dark element of their relationship. And, and you know, and again, this, this captures the envy that we talked about earlier in the podcast, right? Max's anger, disappointment, barely concealed aggression toward Herman is pretty dark, right? It takes a dark turn from this lighthearted sort of comedy that we've been watching. So tell us about that. Yeah, he uses his various skills to sabotage Herman, and Herman hits him back. So at one point, he spills the beans to Herman's wife that he's having an affair, and that leads to a divorce, and Herman being expelled from his own home and checking into a hotel, and then Max, using his bees from the beekeeping club, pumps a bunch of bees into Herman's room. And then later, he cuts the brakes on Herman's Bentley, and when Herman goes to pick up his sons at school, he careens out of control for a while. No harm is done. He doesn't hit anyone. But it's pretty close to being a disaster, which leads justifiably to Max's arrest. So the stakes are pretty high on what, you know, the sober light of day 
shows is a pretty ridiculous notion that a 50-year-old and a 15-year-old are both competing for the affection of the same 30-year-old woman, as if the 15-year-old has any stake in this, as if there's any possibility, as if it would be anything other than cute or ridiculous. But within the reality of the movie, and certainly within the reality that Max presents, this is a very viable rivalry. And Max's feelings are real. And he does believe that he has a chance, and he does believe that Herman is ruining his chance, and that he's justified in doing all these extreme things to compete because his love is so pure. And the possibility of this pure, real romance is there. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, again, this theme we start to see related to point four is that I should be recognized and valued as an equal to or better than anyone else, even adults, if I'm a 15-year-old kid, right? I'm not just some kid. I'm somebody special. I'm somebody worth paying attention to. There's also this theme of adoption, right, that comes in. And now Max is not adopted. His mother had died, and he's being raised by his single father, who is a barber. The great Seymour Cassell plays his, his barber. We'll see him again. And it's almost as if he is seeking to be adopted by Herman Bloom, right? I mean, not literally, but he's trying to, re, you know, almost replacing Herman's sons in, in through the, the, before they start to have the feud, of course, okay? So this feeling of coming from some place of unworthiness and never really feeling like you belong, okay? I'm better than this place that I'm coming from, but I'm not truly accepted, you know, this is the challenge of, you know, somebody who is adopted is this feeling of, you know, I'm not really one of the kids. Okay. So no matter how much the parents love them, it can feel like not enough for a lot of adopted people. Okay. So adoption, again, is a theme we're going to see throughout the other movies that we talk about. And it's, it's part of the consciousness of a lot of fours. A lot of fours fantasize about having been adopted. There's this sense of like, there's no way I come from these troglodytes who don't understand me and don't resemble me in any way whatsoever. My real family is out there somewhere, and I'll find them. They will understand me. That's actually one of the discriminating questions we ask fours, people that we think might be fours, right? Have you ever felt like you were adopted, right? And you'd be surprised how many fours say, oh, absolutely. And they get very energized by their reaction to that, right? So that there's this story of not fitting in, you know, of being kind of Moses in the basket on the Nile almost, right? All right. So uh, so they have this big feud uh, over Miss Cross's affections. One thing leads to another, you know, they all make up. Of course, Miss Cross doesn't end up with either of them. She ends up dating. I don't know if she ended up with the, the Luke Wilson character, but she does leave the school to sort of get away from this and, you know, move on with her life. And Max wraps it all up brings everybody together by putting on a play okay again a fourish sort of theme is that i will through my powers of creativity take control of this world and shape it tell us about that tj so max puts on three plays over the course of this movie and it is very much reflective of what wes anderson does not only in this movie but his entire career is i will create a world i will write i will direct and as opposed to wes anderson max also stars in 
in two of these plays in lead roles. I will make this world exactly the way I want it. And the production values of these plays, the first of which happens at Rushmore, the second two happen at a public school that he ends up going to after he gets kicked out, where he continues to wear his blazer, even though his students dress even yes. less like him there. But the production values of this rival that of any Broadway play I've ever seen. It's very much a heightened reality. So the final play is called Heaven and Hell, which is set in the Vietnam War. And there are palm trees, there are explosions, there's a helicopter, there's reference, we don't see it, but there's reference to him hanging on to the leg of the helicopter, which pulls him off stage, <laughs> which he says was an ad-libbed moment. One of the characters has an actual working flamethrower as part of the play. Everyone attends this play. All the people who love him, hated him, they jump to their feet for a standing ovation at the end. It is a triumph, and it's clear that this is Max's triumph. He's yes. created the world exactly the way he wants. He has expressed himself in his own particular way, and everybody got on board, including the bully from Rushmore that he had hated, that he co-opted into being in the play by shooting a BB gun at the guy's ear and <laughs> somehow used that to convince him to be in one of his plays. And the guy does confess, even though he'd always hated him and always bullied him, but he always did want to be in one of his plays. So the world <laughs> right, kind of right. bows down to the genius, the irrepressible magnetic force of Max's unique creativity. Yeah. And I, I was watching an interview with Wes Anderson on the Charlie Rose show, and Charlie Rose asked him, is Max Fisher a stand-in for you? And he says, well, Max is me, but with confidence. <laughs> uh, which, you know, because that is a quality of Max's that doesn't really strike foolish, right, in some ways. There yeah. is this you know, irrepressibility. There is this, you know, I can accomplish anything sort of quality. And it's it's as if Anderson was saying, you know, I envy that quality in people and I'm going to put it in myself, even though it's not part of my nature. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, Max has an utter lack of self-consciousness. Yes. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that he's not a popular kid. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the fact that his grades aren't very good. He wears this bright red beret most of the time. Nobody else dresses like that. Nobody mentions it. Nobody teases him. But you never see a look of defiance on his face of like, why don't you mention my hat? Look at how different I am. He just wears this as if it's the most normal thing in the world. Yes. And he goes about the world as somewhat of a sophisticate, you know, wearing that hat. He's always paying for things. He's the son of a barber. He's there on scholarship. And he even buys popcorn for Bill Murray's millionaire industrialist, successful businessman character. He's treating the cast in his play to root beer. He, you know, he tells one of the students, get a root beer for anyone who wants one. I don't want one. <laughs> uh, he's, he tries to start a fencing club at the new public school that he goes to, and he's the only member of it. And he signs his name with calligraphy every single time. He does all of these things as if that's just the most normal thing a person yes. can be. In some ways, there's forcedness there, but it's not a perfect portrait of a four. Because, I, I completely agree. You know, he doesn't have the, the withdrawn, melancholy self-consciousness that particularly right. teenage fours have. Yes. Yes, I completely agree. And again, you, you know, with this podcast, we, we don't get too hung up on whether a character is, you know, specifically a four, but what are the four-ish themes throughout the movie? But I, I do agree with you. It's not, well, it's certainly not a person you would see in real life in any way. And you would not see a four who combines all the qualities that Max does, I don't, I don't think, right? But it's, it's a wonderful sports. fantasy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a couple of other points about Rushmore before we move on. So they had a really hard time casting 
the role of Max. They talked, from what I heard, to almost a thousand actors and were almost ready to give up until they came across Jason Schwartzman, who is the cousin of Sofia Coppola and nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. And ironically, uh, uh, Sofia Coppola, also a four. And she's, you know, we talked about her movie last season, Lost in Translation, as the representative of type four. So there is a theme there. Bill Murray, you know, Bill Murray's an odd character. And he, you know, he was sent the script. I forget exactly how it got into his hands. They wrote it for him, but never assumed they would be able to get him. They had had a long conversation about Kurosawa on the phone, Bill Murray and Wes Anderson, talking about Kurosawa's high and low for an hour. And uh, Wes Anderson said it was basically Bill Murray talking about the movie because Wes Anderson had never seen it before. And at the end of that hour, Bill Murray says, okay, you know what, I'm going to do this movie. Right. And, you know, and was uh, was, you know, so enamored of it. He worked for scale. Right. So I think he made nine thousand dollars as his fee for being in the movie. And at one point they were going to do a scene that did involve a real helicopter. OK. And the movie studio would not give them the funding for the helicopter it was going to cost $70,000. And Bill Murray hands Wes Anderson his checkbook and says, just do whatever it costs here. And, you know, they ended up not doing it anyway. So this started a career-long collaboration between Bill Murray and Wes Anderson. And I think it's a good one. As well as a renaissance of Bill Murray's career. Absolutely. He hadn't lapsed into obscurity by that point. But if you look at the other movies he was doing in the 90s, movies like The Man Who Knew Too Little or Larger Than Life, they weren't very good. They weren't very popular. They weren't well-received critically. They don't reflect on him well at all. And from the point of Rushmore on, everyone has loved Bill Murray. And he's starred in every Wes Anderson movie since then and many other excellent films by many other directors. Yeah, it really was a turning point, right? Because Bill Murray had been sort of the broad comedian of Caddyshack and Stripes and Ghostbusters and all that sort of thing. He did do that detour into the Razor's Edge, which was kind of a serious attempted and a serious spiritual sort of movie but that's not what he was known for and then after this he became known as a serious actor right i mean it really did change the way that bill murray was perceived and he's become i think one of the great performers of our time all right so uh why don't we move on tj from rushmore to wes anderson's next movie one of my favorites i remember seeing this movie in the theater and just being absolutely enthralled with the royal tenenbaums you've been listening to the enneagram in a movie podcast which is produced and edited by seth creekmore and is part of the awareness to action podcast network don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.